Hey, Daniel, how's it going today? Oh, it's good. I know we have a little bit of a late recording today. Uh, if you see a light pop on in my background, I have a little herb garden in the office and it tends to turn on in about like 10 minutes. So uh, <laughs> looking forward to that. How about you, I, Evan? How are you doing? I'm doing well. I always have to shut off the ceiling fan in my office because I look like Jesus with a halo. <laughs> 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 kind of like one of our guests does right now for the camera. <laughs> uh, so for listeners, uh, this is episode four of season two. Um, we are calling it uh, Stories from the Deployment Field. So uh, you'll kind of get an eye. It's more of an IT focus. So I might be a little bit more quiet on this episode, which I'm going to let Daniel uh, run with the show this time. <laughs> yeah, we can jump right in. Uh, we'll start out with intros and hot topics. This is probably more, yeah, to your point, more exciting for me than for you today, which Normally not uh, how these operate, but uh, the first introduction here. So really focused on team building and has 20 plus years in healthcare experience. Last 10 years is really focused more on the operation and Epic IT system build and uh, has lots of specialties, including process improvement and just end user workflows and trying to create a low maintenance environment for the IT group. Uh, so thanks, Elizabeth, for joining us here today. Hi, thanks guys for having me on. All right, I get the pleasure of introducing our second guest today, a first timer as well. So a bunch of newbies on the episode today for us. Um, our vice president of operations has spent uh, spent nine years at Epic, um, really growing the revenue cycle products and offering of the services. Um, spent more than a decade though, partnering with a dozen different healthcare organizations. Um, and has been with Wilshire for several years. Um, welcome, Spencer, um, to the podcast. Thank you. I'm uh, excited and intimidated. So we'll have to a good start. <laughs> no intimidation needed. It's an easy conversation <laughs> today. So before we jump in uh, and start hearing about the stories and lessons learned um, from the deployment field, uh, from all three of you, um, I thought it would be good to get some general thoughts on how healthcare um, systems should or could embrace technology um, in each of our own specialties. So, uh, Elizabeth, start thought. With, let's start with you. Um, how do you think um, ambulatory settings could leverage more um, AI or technology better? Um. Well, I think, and I mean, when I, when I say technology, I guess I'm going to specifically speak right to like the, the actual systems that uh, we're using, but it, I, it's very interesting that, you know, I've been, you know, working with Epic and, you know, multiple, you know, organizations, and it's a really, really robust system. And there's still so many people who aren't using it fully, you know, a lot of post-it notes, a lot of, uh, you know, not use of the automation or automation of the system. And the interesting thing is, I think a lot of it just comes down to people not trusting it. So I think some things we have we have a lot of great tools uh, and many institutions actually have it already you know nothing new to purchase but i think really taking time with end users you know and we have to actually teach them how to trust the system again so there's that education sometimes there's cleanup really listening to how they're using it and making it something that's functional because then from there then we can take some of these great tools that we have and actually start to build them and use them but until we can get people trusting the system and understanding how we can take stuff that's you know in somebody's brain or in a post-it or in a piece of paper and build it in so it's intuitive um you know we're not going to be able to get there and leverage that so i think that um that's I think a really great place to start is what you have um, and seeing how you can optimize that first. It's crazy how, and to your point of working with multiple systems, multiple clients, 
the issues that we see or the areas of focus are always consistent, like the whether it's training and post-it notes or uh, mm-hmm. just like a distrust of the system. It, it, it always baffles me that we see the same stuff everywhere we go. Um, I know for me, like work uses one where every client I work with is like, <laughs> you think that there could be a better way to leverage work cues to deploy work cues and get people to trust and use them better, but it seems like it fails everywhere. Maybe Spencer, from from your experience, anything else that you've seen that you think that we could leverage more, use technology to enhance our our day jobs? Yeah, I, I think um, building on that concept of trust, because you're absolutely right. You know, it, it's the same story everywhere where people, you know, aren't adopting things and not using things to its fullest. And I think trying to find ways to encourage people to make it their own, I mean, really, you know, the use of technology should be a very iterative process. It's never going to be right at the beginning. And so you need the leaders, the end users to all really buy in to the fact that they have to provide feedback that says, here's what is doing well, here's what it's not doing well and then you make an adjustment and then you repeat that process there. Um, I would say that's that's really key. And I think technology in general should really be used to position people to be successful. That can be taking the low hanging fruit, find whatever's easy, have you know the, the, the system do those pieces and then really tee up the work for you know, what are really intelligent, capable people throughout the revenue cycle to do what they do best. It's interesting. Yesterday, I was in a retreat um, with my client, and um, from a leadership perspective, we they were listening to um, uh, one of the Maxwell series of, of executive leadership. It's another podcast mm-hmm. out there, and they were talking about the quadrants and the four quadrants of how, like, you know. Um, what's urgent in the urgent work you need to do, what's urgent but could be scheduled or high priority could be scheduled, what's a lower priority but still important, so that delegated type of work, and then what's that true stuff that should be the baby in the bathwater that could be thrown out. And we were all talking about like how, and they were also talking about like how they keep it organized of everything. And they were talking about post-it notes and things of that nature. And we, in, in how to just leverage technology for like day-to-day work and operations and from an operations perspective versus even like looking at an Epic system or leveraging that it was just like, how do I stay organized in, in those regards outside of, you know, using flags in my calendar or putting it in a folder and then that folder continues to grow. So we talked about some, you know, technology solutions, like, Microsoft to do where you can assign it to other people and things of that nature, but really trying to rearrange your workloads and your and your thought process about those four quadrants and saying, okay, if it's a waste of time for you, what's important to you? It's not even necessarily what's important to like Daniel, right? Like what's going to be in his quadrants and being able to say, okay, these are things that can be dedicated, delegated, but we did eventually move the conversation over to leveraging technology in our different areas of revenue cycle and finance to say those delegated items, that's where you should leverage technology or the throw the true waste of time for anybody touching that's those two lower quadrants is where you would focus plugging in, you know, the technology spend versus your strategic component of time and, and what you're doing. So it's funny how these all of a sudden just popped in my head of like, these are the same two conversations <laughs> I was having yesterday. So, 
Yeah, I like the the point you made, Spencer, that technology is really like an empowerment tool. It's not, uh, we really got to focus on like the low hanging fruit. How have, is it, that, that might that leads into another question of like, how do we identify the low hanging fruit when thinking about the the different clients that we, that we work with and you walk in and your first day and you're like, I open up the Epic, I open up Epic, I look at a dashboard, I try to figure out like, what is the low hanging fruit out there? How do we go about identifying that and having, having those conversations with clients? That's a really, really great thought. And I, I think, you know, my, my position on this, you know, has started to shift a little bit with the availability of technology and some of the intelligence out there. I think that, you know, coming into an Epic client, you know, we, we've seen enough that we kind of know where the guardrails live and we can look at a dashboard, we can look at some metrics and quickly tease out where, you know, something seems off. And then it's a matter of kind of peeling back and, you know, you look at the next layer down and you start to see, you know, where something seems off. Um, and I think that our team has been able to do that really successfully wherever we've gone, just because of our background. Now, I will say that can be a very labor intensive process to kind of slowly tease those, those things back. And, you know, what I've you know shifted toward is almost the, the approach of reverse engineering success. Um, you know, there are, you know, intelligent tools out there where you can look at an end product and say, so here is a claim that got paid. All right, what what attributes does this have? How can you trace that back and then start to you know, recreate that process on a larger scale? Like what works? We know based on our data, based on this system, what actually works. And I think it's a matter of looking at what has worked and then tracing that 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 back. I think that's what some of the companies out there now are starting to be able to do. I'm trying to think about like supplement of technology that really can enhance like the the day to day work that we do and be like a something that that's a positive force rather than a a negative <laughs> force. Um, Elizabeth, have you found anything like in your world in the ambulatory setting that you've you've really like latched onto like this is like a recommendation that you move forward with whether it's like a technology feature in epic or um that you're you've you've really seen like take off and really have a positive influence with your clients um yeah and actually and i think even um one it's it's a great tool and i'm just going to speak to the epic system but it also kind of comes into uh looking at some of that, right, that uh, low-hanging fruit in the system, what can we do to optimize, you know, right when you come into a client, and it's kind of the, uh, the hot topic right now, right, with um, a lot of Epic and a lot of our Epic clients, but it's our decision trees, right, so what our decision trees are is there, um, for anybody listening to this who may not know, it's a, it's a way of taking all those workflows in a binder, right, and all those sticky notes, and actually uh, presenting a series of, uh, you know, conditional-based questions to a scheduler to get our patient, what do we want, you know, get them on the phone, one and done, right provider, right time, right visit type, right? Um, but the thing is, is in order for that tool to work, which everyone's like, oh, I love that, you have to actually go in and do some of this really simple cleanup. And the interesting thing is, is a lot of this cleanup is a lot of the stuff that's not making people um, efficient in the system. And I can use one example of our is a visit type build, right? Everyone's just like, if if you can have, and it's one thing I'm actually doing right now with a client is um, we have visit type build that um, didn't have uh, standardization. And so because of that, it's really difficult for staff to look up when they're looking it up, they're getting wrong results. So we're doing something super simple, just going in and making the system um, intuitive. 
there's everything about the epic system especially from what i do the outpatient the scheduling if it's not intuitive it's not built right you know you should be able to select something and if it's populating provider if it's populating a time we know that our build is uh correct and so anything we can do to just do some of this like low cleanup to make that intuitive and then from there you can leverage these great features that really really take all that stuff, you know, living in, you know, Susie Scheduler's brain for 20 years that she knows because she's been here all along and having it be applicable and in the system for somebody starting their first day. That's a really, I, I think, well, I, I was just going to add in, you know, that that idea of having those intuitive pieces. And I think that the, you know, defining what low-hanging fruit is, there's the kind of easy stuff to clean up. And then there are the, the more simple basic functions to have the system automate or enable. Um, you know, if, if you have a, a set of users and, you know, kind of going to the back end, if we're doing a follow-up or we're doing work in the den denial space, there's a good chance that a lot of the notes, a lot of the, you know, things that are being documented are going to be very, very similar. Um, and if you just leave each user to their own devices, that means they're going to be taking notes in different formats. They're going to be writing things down in different ways, and they're going to be writing those same things over and over and over. You know, using some of the tools that are just available in the system, you can really shortcut those things. What are people writing over and over and over? And let's give them a little template to use to write those types of notes that are going to make them faster. It's going to make them more consistent. It's going to make it easier to read. And it's that idea of kind of standardizing and hopefully making things simpler. And I love how we can take those learnings and hopefully go to an implementation stage on our next project and say, hey, here's this learning I had. Let's do this at the <laughs> front end so you're not six months post go live and struggling like with the same issue again. Um, again, to the point of you see the same story in a lot of different places. I think we fall into habits and getting the technology in the right place or the workflows in the right place to really support us. Um, something that takes some time. And I think where we as a, I think all of us here probably supplement uh, our clients really well on finding those those low hanging fruits to improve. I have a I have a question because I and this is me just not knowing. Uh, <laughs> so fancy, I don't know something about Epic actually. Uh, <laughs> so with decision trees, I mean, I I hear us talk about it a lot on our team team calls and things of that nature. And um, you know, Matt and Melissa are really our experts in that space and have been doing a ton of that work. Are they, does it go beyond patient access? Are decision trees available for, for, or something similar for the other areas of operations outside of like having books? And those, I mean, those are kind of the things that like, I think of like, you know, right now I, for my client, I'm over or my partner, I'm over all of revenue cycle. So I, I am exploring the decision tree portion for them on the patient access side. But at the same time, I watch post-it notes, not updated policies and workflows and, and, you know, processes on the back end or even in the mid-cycle space, but you don't hear about a lot of those same types of workflows being built out outside of, you know, work queue rules and things of that nature for prioritization, but that still doesn't tell them how to do it or a series of questions as they're following up on an account, what are those next steps? So I just didn't know what else might be out there for, for, you know, our listeners to hear about how systems are leveraging similar types of technology of being able to be process-driven workflows, but integrated within their EMR systems. I would say, 
That's a tough question. (laughs) I think one thing that's interesting or or maybe, and maybe this is why you don't see it, but again, um, I'm going to say this just from the experience I have, but not that I know everything, obviously, but one thing that's very unique about um, the ones that I'm talking about, right? These are either appointment request or appointment entry decision trees. One thing is, is while they can be very robust, the thing that they don't do is they don't interface with the chart. So really they're meant to guide with questions. Um, you can do things with some certain tasks, right? They give them things to do, like I need to collect medical records and stuff like that. Um, but it's very different than some of our, um, like our, our patient entered, you know, questionnaires, you know, some of those things that patients enter within my chart that actually interface their questions into their chart for this, for staff to know and things like that. So I don't know if maybe it's because so much of this, it's for making an appointment versus storing information long-term. Um, maybe that's why we don't see stuff. Um, or maybe there's a way that you can use them for that. I don't know. Anybody else have thoughts? Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's, you know, I think the the necessity of decision trees was really born out of, you know, that kind of, you know, some of those patient facing moments. Like, you know, how do we get the patient from A to B as quickly as possible? And, you know, once we move into the mid rev cycle, the back end, you know, we, we typically don't have that patient in front of us. And so there's, you know, less of an onus on kind of making those things you know, swift and direct. I think, Evan, you may want to pause the podcast, maybe go do some sort of patent real quick on, you know, the backend <laughs> rev cycle decision trees concept. Um, but they, they, there are a couple of, you know, I mean, maybe it's you know, one tool that I'm aware of w- within Epic that, you know, kind of does something similar way back on the claim edit end. There's the kind of claim edit com- companion where, you know, you can for this edit, you know, build in you know, you click on this, it pops up and like it can create hyperlinks that take you to other places. Um, I think, and I would say much like decision trees, um, those are fairly intensive to build and get robust enough to really, you know, drive it, drive it uh, home. But I think, you know, getting back to some of that, you know, the intelligence that I talked about beforehand, I think we can absolutely identify where is the most where where are the most valuable places to put some of these aug- augmented pieces? Like, yeah, we're not going to do it for everything, but it sure makes sense to do it for this edit that six people work where we've got some turnover, um, and we we want to make sure the people are doing it in the right way. I think also the opportunity to outsource a lot of your backend probably negates mm-hmm. some of the need for automation, just because people yeah. are like, I can just I can send it out. I don't need to worry about it. Um, so why have automation when there's a process out there that does it mm-hmm. and maybe you trust a little bit more than some automated tool? Yeah, I, I think, I think, I think that that's a great point. I do see, you know, industry-wide people are trying to determine is it, does it make more financial sense to outsource or, or to keep it in sourced or have a hybrid version of both, but, you know, then it comes to how does that interface back and how does that keep your source of truth, your own EMR platform um, from there. All right, well, we it's time to take a quick break. We will be right. Claim Capital is a team of ex-Epic staff focused on preventing denials. Instead of showing what was denied, which is the standard for other solutions available today, Claim Capital pinpoints why claims are denied. By training machine learning models on an organization's claim and remittance data, Claim Capital can identify the causes of denials and recommend changes in EHR build or workflows to prevent them from happening in the future. 
With a completely HIPAA-compliant infrastructure, no software implementations, and a zero-risk pricing structure, organizations can quickly and safely recover lost revenue. And we're back. All right. So we're going to jump into the debate. Uh, going to be probably a mix of topics here, given we're talking about IT and stories. But Evan, you want to kick us off? Yeah. So, um, you know, since it's uh, really stories of the deployment field is the subject here for our episode, um, and ladies are always first. Elizabeth, can you share with us about some of the best practices that you've really seen around deployments and, and integration and, and, and partnership? Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, some of this honestly is going to tie in right to that first thing that we talked about, um, you know, why are people not using the system? And um, while I think it's maybe a little bit cliche, right, is people talk about education, but I think it's more than education. I think that to me, one of the things that I've seen has made um, the most successful deployments is when you have um, uh, you, people in operations taking the time to learn what's happening with IT, to actually learn the systems, to learn the build. They don't need to be the experts. They don't need to be this, but they need to know and understand the system that they're building enough that they can have relevant conversations and understand what they're doing. Um, and But on the flip side, right, we also need IT to really take that time to understand what operations is doing. Are they watching workflows? Um, and they, they can't, you can't just have, where I've seen problems is when, IT and operations get together, maybe somebody fills out a form and they do a worksheet and IT just goes off and does build almost like a task list, right? They're just, they're checking this off, they're checking this off. And I've even seen times where things are built and operations, nobody's tested it, nobody's done anything. They're sitting there at go live seeing stuff for the first time. All of these are like a recipe for a disaster. And so I think that one, IT in order to build, they need to hear what operations end goal is and then operations you need to understand the system but you need to say i need you to get me here and then let it work on the best way to get you there because that's why they're there right um and so i think that having that communication is one where you're going to have end users who trust the system because they understand it because they've had discussions with it but another great thing is is people have to have time in a system in some sort of a, a a relevant training environment, right? So some of the things we put people in training environments and it's nothing like the real world. This is not what they're going to see. Uh, and they're like, oh yeah, we're signing off. This looks good. And it's nothing like what, um, you know, patients are dynamic. Uh, it's nothing like what they're going to uh, actually encounter. And so uh, let's just say template build, for example, right? Um, one thing, and somebody, I heard this uh, recently from someone is somebody thinks they know how they want it to be built. Well, let's build it that way. And then let's actually try to schedule one of your current days on that and see if this really working, right? So let's actually put some real world scenarios into the build that we're doing. And I mean, it, it's a lot, but it's like if, if operations doesn't understand and speak the same terminology in IT, if we're not having these conversations where both people really understand as much as they can, we're going to end up with an end product that uh, is going to just cause fire alarms, you know, when, when you're going live and <laughs> the war room is going to be crazy. Um, and the thing is, is conversely, you know, I was a part of a project one time where they actually had um, senior leadership even went to and got certification, right? Um, and they had, and they worked on their governance and they helped, they were involved in the bill. They were involved in naming conventions. They were involved with this and IT spent tons of time with them. And because of that, we had a go live that was crickets because there was so much 
pre-work and due diligence and a lot of long, long, hard conversations, but it, it made it successful. So it can happen, but both parties, you know, have to really be committed uh, to the other in the process together. I th- you know, I think I'm going to put an operational spin on this. I think one of the things as operational partner, business partners with IT that we have to stop as operations doing is telling you how to do your jobs. I think from my perspective, what we need to do is per pose, here's our problem and allow you to give us the solution. And especially if it's a new conversion or a deployment, right? Like we have lots of upgrades and we have lots of things for enhancements. I think that's when operations should definitely provide more guidance. But if this is a relatively new install of an EMR system or platform, as operations, we need to step back and let IT and IS really educate us to how's the system supposed to work? What is it supposed to do for an enhancement? How are we supposed to learn from it and leverage that? And then figure, and then say, okay, well, how will I be able to do this in the future? Um, Versus this is what I want the tool to do for me. Because while we want the tool to do the work, the tool was designed from an intelligence standpoint of here's what a standardized workflow is. Instead of converting it to match our organization and platform, we, which is what most of us do and causes a headache down the road to say, hey, it's broke. It's not working as intended. Well, IT is building it how we wanted them to based off of our old system, not based off of how the system's intended to be used. So I think, you know, for, for our operational listeners, since I'm the true ops body, I think on the call here, born and raised and grew up in it, is really to say, like, stop. Like, listen to, let your, propose your problem, propose what you would like to have, what the end result you want is or need, and then let IT find the solution or tell you how the system can get you there. And if, then if it can't, then that's where you get into that war room and figure out how do you map it out. Um, There, there goes my like East coast, almost rolling those R's. (laughs) and yeah. from that, from that, so just kind of giving you guys a different like flair because I, I agree with you, Elizabeth. Is like lots of people just toss out like, "Here's what I want. I, you need to make this it work this way," and that and that's what gets us down in these rabbit holes. Well, and one thing also, I mean, conversely, if we start with what's your end goal, right? We start with that versus again operations telling IT what they need. One thing is, is if you like, hey. I need this to happen. Sometimes there's other build, other tools in the system that you don't even know about that maybe if you just tell IT your problem, right? And some of your workflow issues, maybe we can bring in new uses, new leverages and try, instead of trying to jerry-rig something to get it to follow exactly, I need it to be, go from this to this to this. You know, maybe there's better ways to do something leveraging that. So yeah, I, again, completely support that. It's really important. And I, I think it's a really good point to you know highlight Evan the the need for that collaboration and that acknowledgement of we have we have differing areas of expertise here and we need to come together to find out how to get the best end product out of those two things. Um, you know I think in the kind of IT and ops um, relationship there we've seen places that. They seem to work hand in hand. They are partners. It's this yin and yang. And we've seen places where it's it's fairly dysfunctional, borders on toxic. And I think that finding ways from the leadership team on down um, to foster an appropriate relationship there is is key. I think part of that is, you know, what 
what are the two teams, you know, tracking towards? I mean, at the, at the end of the day, it should be the, the patient care. It should be the happiness of the patient. It should be the financial health of the institution. Um, I think IT teams that are focused on like, well, I got through 20 tickets today. Well, that's great. But, you know, what were the actual outcomes there? Like, like what did we do to help the organization as a, as, as a whole? And I think if you can have some alignment where IT also watches the numbers, they look at the reports and say, wow, you know, candidate for billing is too high right now. What can we do to support the operation side in actually making something happen there? Um, so I think that the, the alignment is just fundamental there. And then getting to Elizabeth's point earlier about the training piece and having to be real, um, it's really hard in a deployment to you know, have you know, real training. And so one thing that, that we found to be successful is once they're live, as you're getting to, all right, we're going to bring all the billers together in these first couple of weeks. We're all going to get into a room together. We're going to put accounts up on the big screen and go through these things together to try to accelerate the learning curve a bit. And then you can do that at every step of the way down through follow-up, denial, coding. But I think getting people together to do this kind of real-world training and where they can learn off of each other um, is, is also key from the deployment standpoint. Yeah, I always oh. love to say that like you have four to six weeks where everything's on fire and you're all going to work through it. And then after that, that's where you have another opportunity to look at like low hanging fruit again and see what we can, what we can tackle. Mm -hmm. um, yep. It's always fun though, when a project goes well and the war room's very quiet, isn't it? Where <laughs> that, that all <laughs> it's, it's rare, but it happens every once in a while. Well, in which war room? Because I think like you have your IT war room and operations has their own. I mean, I can remember I, 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 the deployments that I was always a part of, like we had our own revenue integrity and revenue cycle war room that IT was not sitting in. Like we were trying to like teach people operationally on the fly and say, okay, this is how you audit for your charges. This is how you find those missing things. This is how your revenue is looking. And then go to IT and slam i need these five tickets they don't have what they need so so um i, I you know education i think is one of those hard parts because how do you guys as you know from an it perspective even build what like you're building out workflows you're building out these items but then how are you getting you know you're taking it based off of the knowledge or or the organization but how do you actually test i mean i think that's always the question when we talk about integrated testing it's like what are we testing or how are we testing and what are we testing for? But how do you guys, what's your guys' recommendations for organizations to, as they're learning from their deployment or are going to come up on an up, you know, an install or something of a EMR system, like what are your recommendations for testing and learning from that as part of, you know, developing those educational opportunities for operations? I'm in charge of the hard questions, as you guys all noticed. <laughs> I mean, I, from a deployment standpoint and kind of thinking of it as 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 a learning standpoint, um, I think, you know, globally from a rev cycle standpoint, you know, the concept of parallel revenue cycle testing, where you're taking a set of encounters, a set of claims, that you've seen go through and they need to be selected in, in a way that is you know these are our high volume pairs these are high volume cases like these are complex these are the highest risk 
and you know run a set of those through you know i've seen organizations do a couple hundred i've seen organizations do a couple dozen and however many you're able to get through where you recreate those in as real a fashion as is possible um, ideally you're you know, having a clinical team drop those clinical charges from their clinical workflow um, and then you try to recreate and then you have a basis of here's the old claim here is the new claim. They don't necessarily have to be identical because there could be some fundamental changes there, but you want somebody then from the back end uh, rev, rev cycle team to be able to look at those and gain some sort of comfort and be part of that process as it, as it goes through. So it's good from an educational standpoint, and then it starts to give people some sense of comfort, some sense of trust. I think Elizabeth is right. I don't think anybody ever totally trusted or trusted enough, uh, but at least lays a little foundation there. I was going to say, that's my barometer as well for both how a project's going and also for training, just thinking about um, like when you pull up Epic and look at an account for the first time in PRCT with an operational person, they're seeing charges, they're seeing the coding done, um, they're seeing all the different steps. It starts to kind of piece together, glue together how the system works and they can see the process of how a charge drops to how it gets to an account, how it gets to a claim. Mm -hmm. um, and that full front to finish is I, I always get asked that like when from operations can i see the full process can i see the front to, front to end and <laughs> and we oftentimes work our little silos and so prct is one of those great opportunities to really show them that full process so they can fully wrap their minds around like what is the system and how it works what does prct mean yeah <laughs> uh parallel revenue cycle testing so yes. you're you're taking a claim from your old system <laughs> and you're trying to reproduce it in epic and you're trying to make sure that everything's the same so that if you did uh, your clinical workflow the same and you're coding the same and everything else the same, you should get the same result. Got it. And Spencer doesn't even have a puppy. <laughs> Two <laughs> <those> dogs. <laughs> Daniel and I uh, joke all the time now that we both are in the have puppy stage that uh, pardon listeners, you might hear dogs in the back. <laughs> Mine is sleeping right here. So uh, <laughs> he's he's passed out on the ground. So what are some other fun learnings that you guys have learned from all of your deployments? Because I think amongst all of us, we probably have, you know, upwards of 200 deployments uh, amongst the four of us that we've all been involved in. So um, you know, what are some of those key lessons learned maybe working with like from the executive level, like what, you know, as executives or director levels are trying to think through, like, how are they going to better support their teams um, with an upcoming deployment or, you know, a redeploy even we're seeing a lot of our clients start to engage in epic refuels processes and really, you know, been on on the platform for you know, five plus years and they need to go back down to the new foundation and, and re-engage. What, what are some of those things that, you know, leaders should be thinking of and being able to help start strategizing to be able to better partner from their lessons learned or even our lessons learned? Um, I would say one thing that um, I, and especially if we're, um, you know, a, a new deployment and, or, um, like a refuel sort of thing, but especially if you are going to be um, restructuring how workflows are done, right? If you're going to be centralizing something that wasn't being centralized, um, is really making sure that you have outlined prior to go live what maintenance looks like. Sometimes people are so busy building and go live and testing and everything that goes in with that, 
they forget that, and let's just say the scheduling world, right? Because that's kind of my bag is many times we're telling providers and we're telling clinics, no clinic changes for six months. Well, I can guarantee you day one, they're ready to start putting those in or ready to start making changes because they haven't been able to, right? Or we have new people coming on and processes. So I think that one, making sure that, um, uh, you know, what does maintenance look like? And also really having those discussions with IT. I think this is one thing that's super important, right? Back to that IT operational um, uh, relationship is operations needs to make sure IT knows who gets to put in tickets, right? We don't want provider Jones saying, hey, I need you to change this for me, right? But really, you know, what is that funnel of the appropriate people escalating stuff to IT, um, putting things in, who should IT be accepting uh, requests from, um, which goes into a whole nother topic, right, of uh, usually after go live is uh, the fires that we're putting out, right? Well, if everybody is able to contact IT to uh, make changes, right, then how do we decide, and no, there's no governance, there's no funnel, there's no nobody looking at this, you know, how are we deciding, you know, what really is the fire we need to be putting out? And what's all this just mess that we have in here? So I think that definitely, you know, maintenance, governance, but also communication of change process between IT and operations are three things that um, I think are really important to make sure you have in place. That's my spiel. <laughs> I always encourage, oh, Spencer, oh, you're on Spencer, mute. Spencer, you're on mute. <laughs> trying, to, trying to mute the dog, sorry. Um, I, I would just say, Amen to what Elizabeth said. I think that you know that that concept of a of a structured and known governance process um, is is going to be key to stabilizing you know after any type of deployment. And I think you have to find a way to make it balanced. Like you you don't want to have you know everybody able to you know kind of put something into the funnel that IT has to work on, but you also don't want a bottleneck where it's only one person and we can't get enough in there. Um, yeah. And so I think, you know, setting the, the right expectations there and having a good process to over time, you know, get the information to IT, make sure IT and operations are on the same page from a prioritization standpoint, um, and then just go through that process so they make progress and, you know, things will get better over time. Yeah, I guess from my perspective, I was trying to, ask the question not from a governance structure, but really around change management. And how do how does IT and operations leaders partner in clear communication around change management and expectations of saying, you know, this is going to suck. Mm -hmm. It's going to be sticky. It feels like we're going backwards because, you know, I've been part of a couple of refuels now where it does feel like you're going backwards. You're back at the very beginning. And that's the intent of a refuel, right? Is to relook at that foundation and say, what needs to modify and were your decisions originally the right decisions and are they still the right decisions going forward? I mean, I, I look at it, you know, for, if I put on my revenue integrity and charge master perspective, every year we have a, fr a freeze and a pause, right? Mm -hmm. We don't allow new codes to come. We're building out new codes. We have to stop requests. We have to calculate out new pricing and, and all of that modeling. And we have to go back and say, okay, what's changed and why is it changing and how is it going to be the build? And I know, you know, from an operational perspective, we're like, hey, IT, you're going to get this two weeks before the end of the fiscal year, your calendar year, <laughs> and you have to slam it in. And I'm really sorry, but it's not driven. I mean, it, it's always the conversation from IT to ops. Like, why is this just now coming to us? Well, the codes don't get finalized till the middle of November. And then it takes us, you know, 
weeks to do the analysis of what's impacted and be able to tell finance what's going to be impacted and price it out and, and get it ready for you to be able to load clinically for the for the clinician. But I think it's that really it was around the how do you how do we partner for better change management based off of our history of deployment? And I think you know in each organization it's different who's going to be that change management facilitator, but we all own a component of that of setting those expectations for our team of like, it's, it might feel this way to you, um, but it might also not. And if, I, I don't know, I always try to set expectations low. And then when we get the best of the best, then, you know, it's an <laughs> even bigger win. Um, but really, really setting it to say, hey, it, it might suck. We might have these big bumps in the road. I think it's a good point for, for from an expectation standpoint that the clear communication and Evan, you you mentioned a few of the you know players there and those you know on that charge update front like you know when those new codes come in you know it is you know kind of you know centered around that mid rev cycle space but it's got to be communicated downstream to finance here's what we're going to be seeing there and then even upstream to some of the clinical modules and where those you know charges end up coming from. Um, I think at, at each of those steps, you know, do we have the right expectations? Have we communicated what we need to communicate so that then they can do their part of this? Um, it doesn't just live in the one group that's making this one decision. It's those upstream and downstream impacts. What are some things that organizations can do to continue to develop like and mature their programs? Because I think every, you know, IT and operational department as some form of structure that the, but you know, what are, what are some of the like mature programs that we've seen that be really successful with our partners? I mean, I will, um, you know, so I, I worked at Epic for about a decade. Um, and so had drank, drank the full Kool-Aid there. Um, and Epic was the center of the universe. And it wasn't until I left Epic and started working, you know, actually within a healthcare system that you understand kind of Epic is a really great and wonderful tool. Um, but that's that's where it lives. It lives at that, at that tool. Um, I think one thing that, that has been a pain point for um, some health systems and the revenue cycle in particular is that Epic, you know, comes in with the best of intentions and creates a bit of a monster in IT, um, where before Epic, the maintenance and like it had to update X, Y, or Z that lived with these two people who sat down the hall in the business office and they did their thing there. And then Epic, you know, out of necessity and appropriately creates a much stronger governance structure and stands up, you know, these IT teams, they're tied close together, they work well together. Um, and, and I think one of the things to, Kind of you know have that you know successful kind of you know ongoing approach and a continuous improvement program. You have to find out you know what needs to be owned where. Uh, we 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 talked before about operations coming up and presenting the problem and then letting IT come up with the solution to that. And I think um, you know there there are ways to kind of have the appropriate people doing the appropriate things. Like you don't need IT updating work queue owners. You don't need IT, you know, running some ad hoc report pieces. You know, those are things that can be owned fully by the operation side. Let the analyst in IT analyze. Like updating names in a, a work queue is not an analyst activity. 
like we can just do that. And so I think, you know, drawing the right line there and in, in my time at Epic, the pendulum really swung a couple of times where IT is locking everything down because we have to have, you know, control o- over the system. I think now it's come back to a more reasonable point where there are some things that operations can own and the, the organizations that, that I've worked with that are the most functional and most mature have a clear delineation, but have operations owning some portion of that. Mm-hmm. And I think full transparency too. I mean, I was just in a, me- a month ago talking with IT and I, I'm showing, you know, dashboards and graph package. And then I'm like, I pull up financial pulse and, and all the pulses and, and I'm going over it. And somebody's like, I don't have access to this on my ops team right now. And I'm like, what do you mean you don't have access? And I, I turned to IT and they're like, oh no, it's secure. We secured it down just for leadership. And I was like, this, these are met, these are our core metrics. Like everybody should see this, like from the point of my register should be able to see where they're falling in automation and once we gave it, it's interesting. Once we got the access for everybody, I had a supervisor come up and she's like, hey, you know, we do, I, we have to do this process and it's really intensive. But at my old organization, we did this and Epic was able to automate this for us. Is that something? And I'm like, put a ticket in. It'll go on our prioritization yeah. <laughs> list, but put a ticket in if you know that the system can do something. So I, I I get the governance component of it, but at the same time, I think it you know really that transparency of everybody being able to see things is key key with it as well, and and having that ability, I think you know even Epic opening up where you can build your Charge Master inside Epic. I don't recommend that, folks, but we'll talk in another episode about that. <laughs> um, but. <laughs> But I mean, it does, they are now starting to empower operations to be able to do things um, outside of the text portion of an environment. Um, but I do think giving your end users in ops the ability to look at record viewer, to look at what is the build, understand the build, read a rule, test a rule on their own to say, hey, does did this hit it for this reason? is key in, edu- in, in IT educating them. What are they looking at? It, it, going back to that education component in the first half of the episode is key, so. Yeah. I'm, la- I'm laughing, oh, go ahead. Oh, I was just gonna say, I was gonna toggle off of it, but then you finish it exactly how I was gonna toggle off it. But really mm-hmm. there's, I've seen so much where IT, it's almost like they wanna hide. Like, oh, we don't wanna show, we don't wanna give people access. I go, I go, let them see everything. Just don't let them touch certain things. You know, they let mm-hmm. them see behind the scenes. Cause again, back to what we said, the more end users understand the system, they're not building it. They're not gonna be the experts. But even like so many times I like to pull up the back end Cause I mean, I've, I wear both IT and operational hat, you know, at the same time. and showing people and they go, oh, they're better requesters, they're better troubleshooters. But even um, I think that sometimes I've been a part, like we'll talk like Nova notes, right? Only IT gets to see those. Why is IT only wanna see those? It's because maybe they don't wanna do the work, right? But I think that you need to have those those educated operational end users, right? They're understanding the system. We let them see stuff. We let them get behind the scenes and they need to be a part of seeing everything that's changing as it's coming. Because if we're gonna have, that robust system, right? What do we talk about? How do we get to that next level? You know, we're educating them. We're trust. We're getting them to trust the system again. We're making the system intuitive. We're teaching them, letting them see. And then that's only, you're only going to get to the next level if you have a, you know, a foundation with that first. Otherwise, we're just going to be, you know, buying a Ferrari to go to the grocery store once a week and not taking it down the PC. 
work should, right? Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. It's funny you mentioned Nova Notes being an IT owned effort. It made me think about I've had a I once had a client where they had operations join their Epic TS call. And if you're not familiar with that, like it's like your technical support from Epic. And that was the first time I've ever seen it. Like where technical support from Epic was on a weekly call with operations. That operation person is mostly was quiet in the background, but they were able to chime in and be like, no, no, like this is what we want or able to help explain things. I, I thought that was a really neat way of getting operations engaged with like the day-to-day technical IT stuff, even if they're not fully supporting it or really doing anything with the build. Yeah, I think it's like I, that you bring up a great point. Like my current client, I asked a question like, hey, can I talk to the TS? And they were like, no. And I'm like, what do you mean? No, like I, I, I'm currently over ops here. Like, what do you mean? I can't talk to our Epic experts. And they're like, no, you need to submit your question to us and then we'll take it to them. And I'm like, this is baffles me because you aren't translating what I'm actually trying to say. And even though I'm using Epic speak in terms, I, I want them to go asked another client and I can tell them what client actually has done this in the (laughs) system and they could go get you that build. But it's, it's this level of like, you know, don't talk to the, it's like, reminds me of wizard of Oz. Like you don't get to see Oz unless you have like a a certain clearance. And, And it's just, it's crazy to me how how operations really to be able to be successful deployments, to be successful in, in what they're doing, they have to see behind, you know, the curtain and they have to understand it. And it can't just be leaders. I think that's the other thing. Like in my last organization that I, I was actually the, you know, director over, I never had my super users be my managers or be my um supervisors actually it was a lead or it was somebody in the newer in the department that wanted to grow and learn their foundational knowledge who understood the workflow physically doing the work not just overseeing the work so from our reporting aspect and experts yes those were the leaders what were the reports what were the metrics that they needed to see but when it came to physical workload super users it it was going IT talking to the actual, you know, claims person or talking with a registrar to say, okay, what is, what are your impacts? What are the things that aren't going smoothly in your area versus having to hear it from a leader? I think getting down to the, down to the end user is what's key. I think, and I would encourage anyone listening to, you know, take what Evan just said to heart, that there is something about having you know, you know, getting the right experts together with the person who can execute a change. Um, and, you know, they're able to get into those details and some really beautiful things can come from that. And I think it's, it's a really, I think, um, satisfying thing for, you know, staff to be involved with and they, they get some ownership and some agency over that. I, I just think it's a really great thing. Yeah, I agree. All right. Well, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. There are thousands of medical offices and facilities across America, each navigating through changing regulations and reimbursement models while striving for positive patient experiences and outcomes. A common element in each of these facilities is patient access, the front line of both the revenue cycle and the patient experience. 
Though diverse in facility size and geography, patient access professionals unite around a common purpose, enhancing the overall patient experience to increase patient satisfaction and outcomes. Through it all, one organization is there to educate, connect, inform, and pave the way toward the future of patient access. The National Association of Healthcare Access Management recognizes the changing role of patient access professionals and their increased importance. And we're back. All right. Uh, so we're going to move on to the Wilshire Lab. And today's question um, it harkens back to something we were talking about earlier. I know we pivoted the change management, but thinking about governance, just putting on the governance hat for a second, would love to hear each of your thoughts on some of the key items that you've seen be in place for developing a good governance structure. One of our one of our listeners was curious to know of like what are some of the elements that um, you just see consistently being used in a in a good governance structure. I'll uh, I, I'll I'll take a first pass and then uh, Liz can make it sound really good. Um, so I, I think you know from a governance standpoint, I would you know you know highlight a, a couple of things. One is you know, I, I talked a little bit before about, you know, segmenting things out, but, you know, there are pieces of the Epic build that are, you know, more sensitive, more critical. Um, if, if you don't do it right, um, it can have some dire consequences. Um, there are other pieces that you can change back and forth and, you know, it, 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 it's not as big a deal. Um, and I think, I have seen org organizations that you know, had a very stringent structure where everything required a certain you know, set, set of approval, had to go to this you know, change review board. Um, and that's, you know, while it made their system very you know, hygienic, clean, pristine, it didn't keep every mistake out and it slowed down the progress of change. And, you know, you know making sure that end users can you know, look at a set of accounts, know what they're supposed to do, and not have to spend time sifting through things they don't have to is just so critical. There are certain types of changes that need to be made quickly, and you have to have a government structure that really supports here are fast changes, here are slow, thoughtful changes. Um, the other area from a governance standpoint, um, you know, that I think needs some special attention is reporting. Um, you know, Evan mentioned earlier, just the, the access to information, the access to those metrics. Um, it's, it's an empowering thing. It's a motivating thing. Um, and that data should be available to as many people as possible. Um, and I think it, it does have to come along with an understanding of, you know, what these metrics mean. So it gets back to the education piece too, because, you know, once you have this self-service reporting out there, then it's possible for people to create a report, you know, create a set of data that tells a story. And so you have to be, have people be very aware and responsible of the stewardship that comes along with that, you know, knowing that if you, you know, pull this report and send it off to the CFO, that could cause quite an uproar if everyone doesn't understand what the data is saying. Um, now, I would absolutely take more availability of data um, and, you know, some of those risks of how the data is shared, um, then locking things down so tightly that people can't pull the information that they really need to be su successful. And I've seen both ends of the spectrum. So I would say make it available, but make sure people un understand what it's all about. 
Yeah, I think it's two governance structures, right? Like you have a data governance team that's saying, mm -hmm. hey, here's where all of our data is going to come out of. And that's IT and ops and compliance and everybody coming together and saying, yes, these are the elements of where data is going to come. And these are the agreed data sets so that at least we're leveraging the data, same data set and the same it, it, different uses of it, but it's the same data. Yeah that's coming controlled from. And then you have just general ticket operation governance as well that people need to think through. Um, and with that, you know, what's your compliance metric? What, what does your organization deem as optimization? What does your organization deem as a project? Or what do you, or does your organization deem as routine maintenance? And I think going into when you're doing that is key. The other key tool out there in the industry that I think is way underutilized by healthcare is a RACI document. Um, it is part of perfect change management, project management, having that, knowing who's on point, who's a decision maker, who needs to be informed um, in every project or even every aspect of implementation and, and is key, I think, for individuals. So you know who those are for. But the one thing from an operation perspective is don't don't not allow your user to pose a question at any level and put a ticket in it. Yes, it makes more work for IS, but you can develop other scrubs by giving, you know, access to a manager um, in operations to a queue where any user could put in a ticket. And if it's coming from their area, it goes into your IT system and you have your ops manager do a scrub review and say, yep, these cancel this ticket. No, this is a duplicate. No, this isn't um, because it's limiting if, a staff member is, you know, a manager is the only person that can put a ticket in or a supervisor. It, it limits what, what you're empowering your frontline staff to be able to do. So I, 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 I think you can put in other, giving ops some access to IT's ticketing system and have their own queue is another way of empowering frontline team members to present a problem, but leadership to say, what's the prioritization? or is this actually a problem first before it makes its way over to I, IS is another way of doing some stopgap prevention. Um, and then just to plug for revenue integrity and charge master, I do think if they don't use a change management system, they should be using the IT ticketing system. It, it, it helps with change control and be able to see what those um, modifications and changes are linking it back to the EAP within the record. So. All right, well, that is uh, kind of a wrap, Daniel. Um, yeah, I, that, we heard lots of stories today, a little bit different than I uh, was anticipating this would go, but you know, it's always fun when you jump into a podcast at first, then you uh, you find yourself in a, in a different place at the end. Um, thanks, Elizabeth and Spencer, for joining us today, chatting about our stories. If folks want to reach out to you and hear more or more stories or <laughs> just want to connect on some of the, the topics that they brought up, um, want to know how they can best reach you, Elizabeth, through uh, LinkedIn, Twitter, email, something that they should contact you at? Um, yeah, LinkedIn is great um, because it links to everything. Otherwise, um, you can go right to the uh, Welsh Group website, see all of our great bios, and I know there's contact information for all of us there. So um, either way, go to our website, see the good stuff we offer, or you can find me on LinkedIn. What about you, Spencer? Likewise, uh, go to the same spot. All right. Well, um, some shameless plugs. Uh, once again, this was episode 
or uh, stories from the deployment field for season two. Um, and if you guys want to learn more about governance in episode six, we will be talking with um, an expert from Stanford and talking about what their governance structure is and how um, have they been making some modifications. So check out that episode in um, a future episode. Thanks, everybody. That's it for us here on the Wilshire IT RevCast. Bye-bye. If you liked today's episode, continue to join Wilshire Wednesdays. You can follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter at Evan underscore Wilshire. Daniel can be followed at Daniel underscore TWG. Wilshire Group at TWG Health. On Facebook at the Wilshire Group or on Instagram at Wilshire IT Revcast. Remember, if you prefer to watch, come check us out at the Wilshire IT Revcast YouTube channel. If you have an inquiry, want to share your thoughts or get additional information on today's episode, email us at Wilshire Podcast at the Wilshire Group. The best way to support this podcast is to review, rate, and subscribe. See you next time. Bye-bye. The Wilshire IT Revcast is hosted, produced, and engineered by Evan Martin and Daniel Bianchini. It is executive produced by Gretchen Case, Hank Smither, and Spencer Thielman. The Wilshire Group, experience you can trust, results you can count on.